welcome to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. We just need one big fundraiser. Our clients are our donors. Bigger is better. Who cares what the mission statement is? I work in nonprofits. Bullshit! As far back as 2009, I heard CEOs of various organizations talking about stopping all forms of print communication and in some cases even doing it. It didn't last long before they realized they made a huge mistake. What is far more common is organizations completely ignoring new technology and social networks. Denial is not just a river in Egypt, you know. There are still organizations with no Facebook, or they will have a link to Facebook on their website that leads to an empty page or a post from three years ago, and I'm not calling any names. When we hear, we only need to be digital, or we don't need a social media strategy, two statements at opposite ends of the spectrum, you can bet that both are bullshit. There was a time when, if your audience was mostly seniors, social media wasn't important for you. That time is gone. Most seniors are on Facebook, more than millennials, who have moved on to other platforms like Snapchat or Instagram. For many seniors, Facebook, and the internet in general, is keeping them active, reconnecting with old friends and giving them a way to stay social when they are not as mobile as they used to be. And there is no better kryptonite for millennials than having grandma show up on your friends' requests and realizing that she is going to be listening to all your conversations and meeting all your weird friends. So millennials started using a dummy Facebook account for friends and family and a separate platform for all their real friend convos. That's millennial for conversations because they can't spell or say anything that's longer than two syllables. You know I love you millennials. Wink emoji. So how will you, as an organization, keep up with all your demographics on a budget and grow your organization? You must have both a web presence and a paper presence. If done properly, the paper presence can enhance the web presence and vice versa. The money we used to spend on printing is cut down and the money we used to spend on the internet is perked up. In all, our budgets don't change that much. What changes is the way in which we promote. Here to talk to me about these issues is my favorite millennial. I met Tarlik in Rakra, who we call Tar, in 2012 when he founded a Rotaract Club, which is the college version of Rotary, at Cal State Fullerton. Tar also founded an Interact Club at Valencia High School. That is the high school version of Rotary. Tar was one of the most natural leaders I've ever met. He grew that club to well over 40 members with great success. Tar was a presidential scholar at Cal State Fullerton and went on to graduate with a degree in finance. Tar, an Orange County native, has spent much of his high school and college career serving the community and leading service projects that had great impact. I had the pleasure of writing Tar a letter of reference for White House internship. Tar worked in youth engagement under the Obama administration at the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Tar has been a board member for several community benefit organizations working on marketing issues, serving as a marketing intern for Pacific Miniatures, a company that makes model airplanes for the airplane industry, and really is an expert on mobilizing millennials for causes. Tar will be attending Berkeley Law School in the fall and continues his journey through civic engagement. Tar, welcome to the program. Good to be here. When I put on my Facebook that I was doing this podcast and, you know, asked people what BS that they thought in their community organizations, you were, you had a really great one. You said, you know, quote unquote, we don't need a social media plan or something to that effect. What did you mean by that? You know, when you do work with these community-based organizations, or let's call them CBO for just a short discussion, um, the main feedback you get back is that our group or our population that we're serving or working with, they're not on Facebook, they're not Instagram, they're not on these social media platforms. So what's the point of us, you know, progressing towards that point? You know, like, isn't it just good enough for us to stick to our typical marketing outreach in terms of like posting flyers, your local coffee shops and businesses, or, you know, word of mouth? 
And while that's all good or not, the statistics are showing you something different. Um, just this morning, I looked up the most recent Facebook demographics report. And for ages 65 and over, you had about 53% of all online 65 and older people using Facebook. And between the ages of 50 and 65, you have about 63%. That's a lot of people. It's almost like a, uh, it's almost over a million users just here alone in the United States. And if you don't tap into that market, I think you're missing out on some essential key stakeholders that you could bring in to your CBOs and have them help out with projects, potential donors, and just increasing your presence in your community. So your point is that people assume that because my clientele is older, that I don't need to do anything on social media. And your point is that a lot of the elder uh, people that they've been dealing with with regular marketing are now on social media, and that's how they should be dealing with them. Not, not, like, I'm not going to say 100% social media. I'm just saying it's an avenue you should start exploring and start looking into because it could be quite beneficial for potentially pennies to what you're spending on actually printing out these materials. Well, and the truth is that everyone your age group uh, and, and under, under 40 have all gotten off of Facebook because the parents are on it and they don't want their parents to see what they're doing. So they create a dummy Facebook account and then do all their real work on uh, on Instagram or Snapchat or something else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, the largest using demographic of Facebook today is 24 to 35. So that's a little bit older than me. Um, my demographic from 18 to 24, we tend to use Facebook for five minutes a day, and that's just pretty much in the morning. That's the average amount of usage for my demographic. The 24 to 35 use Facebook the most. And then as you get older, they use it for less time, but they're more frequent users. So do you find that with your demographic, that people are going on Facebook to create an image for the people they don't really want to see on their you know, in, in other words, a, a lot of people your age, they don't want their parents knowing everything they're doing. Uh, and there are certain friends they may not want to know everything they're doing. And so they may have one account for, for appearances and another account for their real friends that, you know, are doing things that maybe they, they may not want everyone to know. Yeah, of course. I think that my demographic and possibly all the way up to uh, the 18 to 40 age group, you have us, us creating social images in which we want to portray a certain reality that may not actually be true. Um, so, of course, I think that Facebook is, you know, where we kind of tell the white lies and show just got a new car, but we don't show that we were suffering in debt for maybe six months. There's, there's just this false social image that I think we kind of create through Facebook. But then as you get to other social avenues, such as Snapchat or Instagram, you potentially start to see more of the realistic view. And that's when people start, you know, controlling who's viewing their profiles more. Right. So, so people are being very careful about cultivating their image, and your point mm-hmm. is that uh, organizations should be just as careful to do the same thing digitally. Exactly. Yeah, precisely. And, you know, I think the converse is also true, that there are people in my age group who are running organizations like I do and say, oh, you know, everything's going digital. We should just switch everything to digital. And I've actually heard people on online chats uh, with other CEOs say, I'm, you know, I'm ditching all of my print programs and doing everything digital. And then a year later, they're back because they realize that that was it's way too soon, that people are needing both right now. Yeah, um, there's this, um, see, that's the thing, too. When you talk about social media and going to marketing and mass media outreach, a lot of people think you should jump into the pool and hope you're going to swim. But, you know, it's really a transitionary stages of you kind of maybe do 25% social media, 75% where you're originally going, and then you just naturally progress until you get to a right balance. Each organization is going to be different. I'm not going to lie. There could be an organization out there that may not need the social media plan. But I'm going to I'm going to put my money and say the majority of CBOs out there 
are missing out if they're not taking an active social media presence. For example, you came from the Muckenthaler and they had a speakeasy, I think it was last uh, Thursday. I think that yeah. was like one of their events. Yeah. And I was sitting there at the cellar, which is a bar in, in downtown Fullerton. And the people next to me were posting their images and creating this image of how much fun they had at the speakeasy. And that wasn't even the muck investing in these millennials that went to the speakeasy. That was someone else creating a marketing plan for you. Think about all the networks that you surrounded because of a social media page that the muck has always created. Wait a second. You, you're saying that you were at a bar in Fullerton, which mm. is where the Muckenthaler, which is the cultural center, is. And mm. last week, I know last week they had their annual speakeasy event, which because it's the 1920s mansion, so people dress up like mm-hmm. the 20s and do a speakeasy. So you're saying you were at a bar and somebody next to you was posting stuff from the speakeasy that they had gone to or they hadn't even gone to it? They hadn't even gone to it. I was, I was at that bar for a while, so I got to see them before and after they came back. But... Before they went, they posted an image of their been dressed up in you know the 1920s outfit, saying they're going to the muck. And all of a sudden, one by one, more millennials were coming dressed up to that bar, and they went as a group to the speakeasy. And all of a sudden, when they came back, they're still posting pictures of what a great time they had. And the monks didn't even have to pay these millennials to post for them. But all of a sudden, now you have this new group and population that's becoming interested in the local in the local CBOs um, event that happens every year. Well, and that's something I noticed too, uh, because we, you know, I, I no longer run the Muck and Fuller, but it's a historic building that is also a cultural center. It's really beautiful, and it's the, the regional cultural center for North Orange County. And I did notice that a lot of the historic events were really popular with millennials because they're really kind of into history and, you know, that whole history mentality of, of everything that's nostalgic is cool again. So, um, and they love the speakeasy event. So that, that's really cool that you saw that happening. You know, it used to be that you would put together a um, social media campaign, and the whole thing was to drive people to your website. The whole end goal was to get people to your website. Is that still the end goal of a social media campaign in your view, Tartar? I don't think so. I think that like a website is a great platform to have, but your social media aim is to give it to me in 10 seconds. What exactly do you want to do? Tell me the who, what, when, where, and why. I don't have to visit your website. I think, at least for my demographic, and I think just our lifestyle as a society overall, is we're so fast-paced and things are always happening that we want quick access so we don't have to click a link to go somewhere else. And now these social media platforms are answering that call. On Facebook, you can RCP to an event there. You can buy your ticket on that platform. Same with Instagram. You could even shop now, book now, have all these features for your CBO as a click of a button so that your user doesn't have to spend the extra time going to your website, navigating it, figuring it out. That's, that's really great. So it's not all about driving people to your website anymore. It's, it's just about getting a conversation going about your organization. Exactly. Exactly. In your opinion, what's the best way for organizations to connect with people of your age group? Because you're kind of the magic age group now for people. You know, the, the baby boom generation was huge. The uh, Gen X generation was not so big and really didn't re- require a lot of organizations to adjust for them. But the millennial generation, your generation, is the biggest since the baby boom. And mm-hmm. if we're going to survive as organizations, we need to get your people uh, of your generation involved with us. And mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you and I have, have uh, been able to do that one-on-one. But what's the best way for social media to get people involved with them without coming off as you know just old losers that are trying too hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think there's also, to be fair, there's some CDOs that are that are run by millennials and operated by millennials. So we are interested in like community-based organizations. I think my demographic really loves to be involved with that 
to a certain degree, we, we are the generation that I feel doesn't like commitment. So having the traditional membership plans, I'm not entirely sure if they're as effective, but what millennials can pay for is experiences. That's what they love. Like, again, that speakeasy is an experience. So what I would go with the social media is that you have to create this social image where a millennial would feel comfortable coming to an event and becoming part of the experience and becoming part of your organization's mission for just that one day. You know, it's almost like you take that one purchase at a time, three months later, they come back to another event. But the membership was like saying, hey, you can pay every month and get member discounts. I'm starting to think that like my generation would be hesitant to do that. And the way social media comes into play in all this is it's the perfect avenue to give us an experience of who your organization is, as well as allow us to be part of that experience. Yeah, you know, what I've noticed about millennials, because of the fact that you guys are mostly in college or just out of college, you're starting your career. Um, what works well is, is, is organizational events, programs, posts that are actually organized by other millennials for millennials mm-hmm. and usually don't cost anything or cost very little. Um, once, once there's a big price tag involved, it doesn't matter what you're doing. People are not going to flock to it if they don't have a lot of money, unless mm-hmm. you have something they really, really, really want, like some, some artist that they're dying to go see in concert and you're going to have them at your little organization or some program they really want. Or it could even be like um, a crowdsourcing campaign or, or a crowdfunding campaign that they're really into and they, you know, they feel compelled to give 10 bucks on their credit card. But what do you exactly. think in terms of, um, you know, it's definitely true. I think it's true also, like if you want to get, if you're, if you're not part of the Latino community and you want to get the Latino community involved, you've got to hire someone Latino who's a good producer of the Latino community to get them involved. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't just put flyers in Spanish and all of a sudden Latino people flock to your stuff. You have to have something mm-hmm. that they care about driven by people that they care about. And I think the same thing's true of millennials. What what have you seen effective? Well, actually, you've done some really effective campaigns for people in your age group. What's some good examples of what works? Well, you know, it, this is actually kind of what you said with the Latino example. You want to have a millennial kind of helping you craft your image. But I also think that, like, a very important point to make is don't become something you're not. You know, there are clearly some organizations where, I'm, I'm, like, when I say that is you should never cast a wide net over any type of demographic. You should always take a targeted approach and stay true to whatever the mission statement is of that CDO. So, for example, um, with the road rack and some of the projects that we did, is we kind of defined who we are and we defined the type of project and the mission and the type of demographics we were after. And because we stayed true with it, we did really well with our target demographic, constantly pulling them in one by one. But what happens is I think that if someone takes a more unfocused campaign, you're kind of bringing in one or two people who aren't committed to stay. So Again, like, it's just because it's been recent that Mux Speak Easy it attracted a certain population of millennials that was into that, that was into the whole 1920 scene. And especially with, like, with Disneyland having its staff day over the weekend, it was just the perfect timing for people who were visiting for the weekend to know about this other event that was going on very close by to Disneyland. It's just, there's this very focused outreach that I think a lot of organizations should be focusing on to make sure that they're attracting the right type of people to come and get involved. Otherwise, you're going to get someone who comes and may not be as happy being there, experiencing your event. I feel like they were sold a different image than what was reality. Well, that, and that's the advantage of the Internet is that you can do niche marketing like you could never do before. Like if, mm-hmm. if you're doing, like at the Muckenthaler, we used to do um, folk concerts, folk music concerts. And, you know, let's say we're doing a Brazilian concert of Brazilian music. You can actually target Brazilians in the area who are interested in that music on the internet, you could never do that so easily before. 
Um, you know, you can, you can get niche groups. Now, I know the first two years that you started the Rotaract Club at Cal State Fullerton, it was predominantly Asian. And mm-hmm. you were aware of that. And by the third year, you, you and the people you're working with were able to bring in a more diverse group of, of uh, students. And now we have a Latino president uh, of the club this year. So how were you able to do that? How were you able to um, kind of translate to new demographics and bring them into the club? Yes, that was a more of a conscious awareness. I think once we took a group picture and we saw that every member was Asian, it was kind of disheartening for me as like a president, someone who founded the club, that I wasn't creating a more open environment. And I realized that, you know, the image that we were portraying to the public was that we were predominantly Asian American community service-based organizations. And that was just attracting other Asian Americans, which was fine, but we didn't do so well with the other demographics until we started making a more conscious approach and being mindful of the types of events that we were doing. So, for example, one of the things that was popular was going to more Asian type of restaurants and food because that was just popular amongst the group. But then when we started making our events and creating our, like, social events, we started being more open and making a conscious effort to attract other demographics by having their cultures present, too. And all you have to do is bring in maybe two or three new members of a certain demographic and then get them really involved and have them almost, you know, drink the Kool-Aid so that when people see them and see that image, they feel like this organization is more diverse and they feel more comfortable in that environment. So a lot of it is just being consciously aware of your demographic and things that you may do that you may not realize. Like, for example, how, you, how, do we, how are we supposed to know that because we always go get boba after every event, it may not be as um, appealing for other demographics. And now we try to stay more neutral in terms of what type of socials. Well, towards the end of my term, we're no longer involved. We started to stay more neutral with the type of events that we were doing and have a good mix and variety. Well, and for listeners who are in an area of the country that doesn't have boba, what boba is, yeah. he's referring to, is a tea, kind of a milk tea, very sweet, with tapioca balls in it that you drink up through the straw, and it's a lot of fun. And it's, uh, it, it was started in uh, Taiwan, and it's become kind of big in Asian-American culture all through California here, and I'm sure other places as well. So uh, just, just to clarify that. So, Carl, <laughs> let me ask you another question. What are the worst things that organizations do in, to connect with your age group? What are the things that you see organizations doing online that you're like, oh, man, I can't believe they're doing that? Using Microsoft Word to create your flyers, I think, creating <laughs> any type of post. Like, if I see Word art, if I see clip art, clip art is, like, an absolutely key to, like, when I see a clip art marketing campaign or flyer, I know I'm not going to that event because I know exactly who created it and if that was the type of image they're portraying, I know it won't be the type of event for me. But let's say like they did do a successful marketing campaign and they attracted the millennials. Here is the part that where I think a lot of CBOs go wrong is that when we do come to events, there's this hesitancy to speak with us just as much as like we're nervous to speak with older generations, older generations are nervous to speak with us. And sometimes I feel like the what happens when I go to like a CBO event I feel like the community that's already there, they've known each other for a while. Like people are going to hang out with their friends. And as a new entering millennial, it's very daunting on me to kind of come into this new group. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that you've experienced it in your, in your experiences, uh, working with CBOs is that you kind of have the same population coming over and over again. They're like a community. They know each other. They enjoy it. But if someone new comes, it's really hard for us to adapt. So I think the one thing I would suggest is maybe having some more conscious awareness of, Hey, there's a new millennial coming, or there's a group, there's a person standing by themselves that we don't even know. Let's try to bring them into the activity. Let's try to make sure they're enjoying their experiences. And then the other thing is after the events, I don't know what it is, but a lot of organizations love sending out surveys. And surveys are great and all, but if your survey is longer than 
10, 15 questions, no one's ever going to take the time to complete that. It kind of gets more burdensome. I think and, for longer than five, I don't want to complete them. <laughs> exactly. You know, you just want to see it and say, pro multiple choices, good, great, awesome, and send it off. But again, I feel like I usually get hit with maybe 15 or 20 questions, and I'm like, I, I'm not going to take the time to answer this. Well, uh, let me interrupt you for a couple of things. On the clip art thing, which is hilarious and true, um, you know, if, you're, if you have any kind of design sense, and a lot of millennials are really into design, uh, it's a very important part of the web. Uh, you know, clip art is, is just awful to see. But the other side of that is if you use a picture from the web and you don't get permission for it, uh, you will be taken to court. I actually uh, had an intern that used the Getty Images picture on one of our flyers, and Getty Images sent me a cease and desist order. And it, it, it became a three-month thing. They wanted us to pay a bunch of money. We were able to get an attorney on our side to kind of help with it, and we got out of it. But, um, you know, I, I made sure that the marketing director looked at everything that went out after that. It was real easy mm -hmm. to just feel something and think no one's going to know, but on the web, everybody knows. So um, it's important, I think, to, to get your people to go out and, and take their own pictures and do their own promotional stuff, which is mm -hmm. a lot of fun for people who are, especially people who are in college, that are learning this stuff. We had some really great interns come through the muck, uh, the muck and follower that you mentioned before we call it the muck. Um, and we had some great interns that came through and did our work for us uh, in terms of promoting to your age group. And that's going back to what we said earlier. The key is really having people of your age group doing things for themselves, for their own, for mm -hmm. their own people. Um, because you're, if you're trying to do it, you're not going to do it well. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, I've asked, I've asked some other people your age what really bugs them on the internet. And one of the things that really bugs them uh, from organizations is when they feel they've been talked down to, you know, like, hey, millennials, blah, 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 blah. Or, um, you know, when they get called out as a set, as we're doing right now in this interview, but <laughs> we're doing it for the purpose of learning. But you don't, yeah. want, to, you don't want to, like, call people out as a set and say, uh, hey, millennials, come down to this groovy, cool, rad place, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just it sounds patronizing and you're talking down to people. Yeah. And, um, another thing is emailing, emailing me too much. Oh my God. Dude, I can't tell you. I have one organization that emails me every single day and it bugs the crap out of me. Excuse me. Yeah. Like it's just every single day. It sounds like the organization is just organized. I know it's not so organized. That's the thing. I know the person really well. I know the organization really well, but every single day I get an email about some new event, some sort of promotion, and I think you should choose your time very carefully in terms of when you're going to email someone and do it max once a week. Right. You know, more, than, more than once a week, you're annoying. You're annoying every person on that sender's list. And one by one, they'll take themselves off because they just don't want to read it. Yep. And you can see your click-through rate. I mean, a lot of people don't uh, know that they can go online and Google Analytics and see their click-through rate and see how many people are actually clicking on their emails. And if it's less than 20%, you're probably doing it too much or you're probably sending out content nobody wants to see. Mm -hmm. and Another and then thing. Adding, go ahead. Sorry, adding graphics to your email is, is it's, it's good in some regards. It has to be artfully done, tastefully done. But adding random pictures from like the year before and like just putting a picture of the event the year before may not be the best avenue because you've got to be careful. The size of that image matters because the moment it's over a certain like limit, it's going to go to people's spam folders, and then you just wasted a perfectly good email. Oh, that's a good point. So if people put too many high resolution pictures on an email, then they're mm -hmm. really destined for the spam folder. Yeah, uh, and, well, like, yeah. I mean, obviously, you don't want to have an email that's just all text. Nobody's going to read it. 
pitchers mm-hmm. speak a thousand words and you want pitchers to tell a story, but your point is the pitcher should tell a story. It shouldn't just be some random pitcher on there to have a picture. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's all pretty good advice. Um, I think uh, if you were in charge of an organization, Tar, and your job was, you know, working to bring in more, more people of your own age group, what would be some of your key strategies? Um, so the very first thing I would do uh, is if I don't have a Facebook page, I create a Facebook page. I, don't have any, uh, I, I tend to stay with uh, Facebook and Instagram. So I would create both those, and then I'd focus on a Yelp, a Yelp page, too, because I want people to not only see the image, but then hear the reviews about about what my like organization does, or if I'm a physical location, online location, I want someone to see reviews not done by me, but by some other people, other age groups, so there's kind of like that stamp of approval by the community. And then Yelp is a very dangerous platform to be on, because if you do attract Yelpers, it now opens you up to losing your social image very, very quickly if you do things wrong. So let's say, for example, if I was an arts, uh, arts community-based organization, I would want to host a Yelp event when I'm perfectly ready for it. And I'd probably try to do like a, a food and art festival for Yelpers to come and experience like my organization there. Because the food and the art, it goes well together and it would attract more millennials to come in. And the Yelpers, are the, especially the Yelp elite, are exactly the type of people I'd want to come and be like the first, have these first experiences with my organization. Because Yelpers aren't afraid to tell you what they feel. But also, they're very critical because if you get those good reviews, you can start attracting a lot more millennials. And then after that, I would use images oh, wait, of that wait, and focus on it. Let me interrupt you for a second. So yeah. just for people to understand. So um, Yelp has an elite group of people that do a lot of reviews, and they're called Yelp Elites, and they have special events just for Yelp Elites. We had one at the Muck and Dollar, and we had about 300 Yelp Elites show up. They show up because they're free, and you have to provide free food for them. And if you wine and dine them and treat them well, they will do really great reviews for you, and your ratings will go way up. But like Tar says, if, you're, if your place is not great, you will get that in your reviews as well, and you can uh, you can really lower your status if you're not ready for Yelp. So that's that's really good information. So go ahead. I just wanted to explain Yelp a yeah. little bit to people who may not know. Yeah. So like once once you got that stamp of approval from Yelp, because I think I think nowadays, well, at least from my experiences working with certain Rotarians, is there's this big push that after events we should get something printed in a newspaper, like uh, get some sort of article done about the event, which is great and all, but my generation doesn't read the newspaper and chances are we'll never ever see that article. So having Yelp is something that I think all generations and all demographics are starting to use because once they experience it, they can see a very good understanding of the type of place they're going to go to. But then once after that's done, I think I would focus more on my Instagram. And like the cool thing about both your Yelp and your Instagram is that it could all be tied into Facebook. So your Facebook page is just consistently updating itself, but you could focus more on your Instagram. And Instagram is this platform where you pretty much communicate through photos. And I think photos is a great medium of conversation and and um, drawing in attention to your organization. Because the one thing that millennials like is, again, helping them create that fake reality or social image and giving them something to post on their profile, giving them some sort of artistic shots that they can reblog or repost, and having them you know really get intrigued by your social image and say they want to be part of your social image. But I think that when we're talking about CDOs in this discussion, I think we're focusing a little too much on a physical location because I think there's also some CDOs that are more of just online only or they're actually more of like um, activist groups too who can still follow the same um, idea of where you're focusing on Instagram as your main medium because it's just so popular amongst my group because that's where we went to after Facebook kind of got invaded we flee to 
to um, Twitter for a while, but then Twitter kind of failed us too, and now we're on Instagram just for a while. And the thing is, I, I keep catching up with us. I was going to ask you, would you have a Twitter account? I, I don't think so. I, I'm not the biggest fan of Twitter. Part, part of me is kind of like, we don't see the, I don't see the use of it. Some people follow their famous actors on it. But again, the tw- people who are addicted to Twitter, I'm not entirely sure if that's like a worth it. That's worth investing in first. You know, that's like a secondary. Do you think the current president being so active with Twitter has turned people off of Twitter in your age group? Yes and no. I think some of us enjoy reading his tweets because sometimes they're really funny to us and they're sometimes also really sad. But we like the thing is that like, most people don't have to be on Twitter to view Twitter. And versus Instagram, you kind of have to have the application and kind of have to have a profile to be part of it. Would I do a blog? Um, depending on the organization. It really depends on the organization. Some organizations should do blog posts, some don't. So like, let's say you're, you're very active in your community and you want to do a recap of an event, that's a blog post worthy. You have a good speaker coming, that's blog post worthy. I don't think every little thing you should do should be blogged about on a community-based organization. So you got to really pick and choose your blog. blog regardless of what's going on that week. You think it should just be based on newsworthiness. Yeah, yeah, because you got to pick and choose because you don't want to invest your time in writing a blog post that maybe four or five people will read. Would you put things up on Reddit? No, no, I, I would. I'm sorry. I, like uh, Reddit is more of a, a forum, so it's like I don't know if you'd I'd use Mark Reddit for marketing. I'm not sure if I well, know any organization. <laughs> a lot of people use Reddit as their newspaper now, and sometimes you can get community news from Reddit if you have that that filter on. Yeah, but do the, the concern is on Reddit you can't control your image as much. Let's say you do post something, and the conversation in the post. You know, like what's going posted below just goes the wrong direction. It's really hard to contain something if something goes wrong. You know, with Facebook, if um, if you post something and it doesn't resound well, you can delete it easily. You can manage some of the comments. You can kind of like police to make sure like no one's swearing or painting your image. It's, it's To me, it's not censorship if someone's swearing on your page and cussing you out. To me, that's just, if you, someone did that to me in my physical place of business, I'd probably kick them out of my physical place of business. And that's kind of how you have to be the Facebook page and all your social media. You have to carefully control your image. So don't, again, with Twitter or being public like that, you have to make sure you take the necessary precautions to protect your image. Yeah, again, you would do, I mean, you could get that with Yelp as well. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, would you do a, a weekly e-blast or would you just do an e-blast when there's news? I w- uh, so... For if, we, if we did have members in our organization, I would do a weekly email, but I, I, I would be careful, though, because if it's a dead week, I'd be concerned about sending out something. So I, I guess I would say it's a bit of both. You want to send out frequent emails, but you want to make sure they're content-worthy, so you got to be careful about what you're sending out. You don't want to send an empty email to saying, hi, there's something to report this week, but like every email should be crafted with intention. That's why when um, organizations tell me that, or if I talk to a marketing person and they say they craft their emails within a few hours on a random Friday, that's something that raises red flags to me right away because it's so much thought has to be going into this email because it's, it's like you're presenting yourself every single week to everyone who's a constituent or a stakeholder. And you want to make sure that everything's written in, a, in such a concise and clear way that the intent is very clear as to why you want the reader to know that. Well, is there anything else that you would, uh, anything else you would want people uh, my age to know about uh, online marketing that you think is relevant and important? I, I think, well, financially, it's really cheap. It's free. In, some, in most regards, it is free. 
you can always boost your posts and, you know, pay to have it promoted. But at the core of it, it's a free way to get your name out there. The only thing you have to be careful is that you have to know exactly the type of image you want to portray before you create the page. Um, one of the other things is that, like, remember the moment you, you put yourself out there on a social media platform, online marketing and whatnot, it's going to stay out there. So right. you, as a, you as a director or you as a, a board director, someone in a position of management, you should be screening everything that goes out. Um, as much as like marketing people like their autonomy, it's always great to have at least someone reviewing it. Like you said, with the Getty Images, you want to have a good knowledge of legal uh, legal issues that go on with uh, online marketing, and you want to have good knowledge of you knowing exactly what's going out. Right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you said it's free it's not free in terms of having somebody to do it because it takes a lot of time to do social media. But mm-hmm. if, if uh, organizations are smart, they have created strategic partnerships with their local colleges and high schools, and they're getting interns in uh, because it's really important for, for uh, young people that are in high school and college to get that job experience on their resume. And so we can help each other. They can get some job experience. We can get something we need done uh, in marketing and something real world experience for them. But if you have the money to pay people, you should always pay people. If you can't, there are um, there are internships that you can do through colleges for um, for community service. That uh, there's usually a community service office at every college that will will help facilitate that. So that's that's a good thing for people to know. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay, Tar. So uh, I've got two last questions. One, uh, this this is about unpacking all the bullshit that people say in community benefit organizations. What is, uh, is there another piece of bullshit that you'd like to get off your chest? Um, hmm. There's a lot. <laughs> you know, I, I think I have to be careful how I say this. I think there's this wrong perception uh, when you, I'm going to say, I'll even pay the quarter. When you hear the word nonprofit, what comes to mind is exactly what, what, we're talking about is that it's, it's ran by an older person from an older generation. And I think that that's a very big, that's a lot of BS in terms of there's a lot of CBOs being created today by my age group that are always looking for people to get involved. So it's going to go both ways. You know, there, there are CBOs that are owned by the older generation that are looking for millennials to get involved. And there's millennial started CBOs that are looking for more experienced and older people to connect with too, because, the, the way I put it is that we're in a very symbiotic relationship where we need each other to help our CDOs gain the maximum amount of usefulness and do the maximum amount of good work in the community. Um, so I, I would say that like not all CDOs are of a certain age group. Uh, maybe the majority are, but I think there's a huge trend, uh, at least amongst my peers, that when we come out of college, we do some CDO work, we create CDOs with our friends, we, the good mission project, the great work experience. Um, and we're, we're attracted to working in there. And the right thing is, like, how how are you going to attract us to come in and work for you? Because that's, I mean, that's the first thing you're going to have to tackle before you start attracting. How are we going to attract millennials to our CBOs? It's more like, how are we going to attract them to work for us, too? Because I think in the longevity and succession of your CBOs, that you need to start shifting to more of a younger group coming in into the workforce because that will naturally change the progression of everything else. Well, I think you bring up a good point that, uh, you know, somebody my age, um, we we interact with your age group. We feel a little insecure because we know that you understand technology better than we do. You grew up with it, and we didn't. And that puts mm-hmm. us at a feeling of a disadvantage that, um, you know, we're supposed to be the the experts, the the um, 
elders, the ones with all the experience, we're supposed to be mentoring you. And in, in many ways, I feel that people your age are often mentoring me. And, and uh, you know, I'm the one teaching my, my father-in-law, who's in his 70s, how to use a, uh, an iPhone, you know. And mm-hmm. so, you know, everything's gotten turned around with technology where we need the younger people to teach the older people rather than the way it's been for millennials. Uh, you know, thousands of years, it's been the other way around. Pe- people who are younger are looking for advice from older people. And we, we have kind of in this inverted society where, where we have to ask millennials for help. And so it, it can make us feel very insecure in my age group. But what I found is that people your age are not always so good at face-to-face networking. They're not always mm-hmm. so good at working in the real world. And so there's a real um, opportunity there for us to work with each other for people of my age group to learn technology from your age group and not, and when I say learn technology, this is what I hate. This is, this really pisses me off is when I see someone my age will ask somebody for help and they'll show them how to do something. And then they con- continually ask them for help to do the same thing instead of learning how to do it. <laughs> you just think, yeah. Oh, well, my kid will fix it for me, you know, or my whatever, you know, uh, my student will fix it for me. And, and they don't learn the technology. They just assume somebody younger is going to be around to help them with it. And, and I think, you know, we would expect someone younger to learn from us and not ask us the same question over and over again. But we feel perfectly okay to do that to people in your age group. Say, oh, you know, come, yeah. come to my app, it's out again, you know. So uh, that really bugs me. But I think there's a lot for your age group to learn from us in terms of working in the real world and, and, uh, and networking face-to-face. And, you know, even writing skills has gotten lost and things. And then there's a lot for for us to learn from you. So it's, it's a two, it should be a two-way street. And uh, Zoo, I, I actually do have another like, BS aspect. Let me talk about it. Um, it's kind of going off the direction of social media, but it's more of an in general thing that I think that my age group has gotten based off some of the older CBOs. And it's this idea that we, we just suck at fundraising because we fall for this one trap that the key to fundraising is hosting this big event, potentially a big dinner, a big reception, and that's supposed to bring in all this money and so we invest all this time and resources in organizing it, and then we realize that we spend a lot to make maybe a little bit above to break even, and then they call that a successful fundraiser. I think what CBOs in general should be doing is moving away from, like, please stop having these dinners. Please stop having these large, fancy events at this hotel, because I, I, I worked with enough locally to know that they're not making a lot of profit. It's, it's, I think it's almost more profitable to have these smaller-scale events on a more frequent basis and charge, you know, a reasonable price from like 15 and $25 and have that repeated because there's two values in that. You're not only having good fundraising, but you're getting more people involved. I'd rather have two, 3,000 people paying me $25 than 100 people paying me $100 per person. You know, I'd rather have that be the case with my CBO. But I think that my age group, when we're creating CBOs, we think very similar to what older CBOs do, and that's to have these annoying big fundraising dinners and I like you you obviously have more experience than me and I could be talking out of place but I just don't think that's the most valuable avenue of fundraising and I think that's the easy trap that a lot of us fall for well you took the words right out of my mouth because we actually I I have a an interview scheduled for next week and we're doing a podcast on this specific subject because one of the biggest pieces of bs out there in our industry is this idea that you make money in a big gala and it's completely Mm -hmm. false I mean the fact of the matter is that most dealers are very successful if they bring in 10% of your annual income. Um, and that would be considered a very, very good gala. Um, most dealers actually either lose money or, if, I mean, if you were to take everything into account, they either lose money or they, they're lucky if they break even. 
And we're going to do a whole podcast on that, but you're, you're absolutely correct. They, yeah. They're one of the worst forms of fundraising. And in some way, shape or form, we've come to believe that they're the best and they're, they're just not. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I'm going to like kind of end with. If you're online marketing, if you do all the steps, you invest all the time and it doesn't work. The next thing I look at is what exactly are you selling? What type of events are you having? Because the problem may not be your marketing. The problem may be you just have terrible events. And that would be something to you about it too. Everything when you come down to it has to be about the mission of the organization. If you have a mission that people care about and you're good Mm -hmm. at conveying that mission, both in the way that you're raising funds and the way that you're marketing, you you won't have any problems. People will line up to give you money. People will line up to, to come to your events if they care about what you're selling, if they care about what you're, what you're offering the community. Uh, the problem is that a lot of people will create an organization around a mission um, that's really more about them than it is about the community, and that's where they fail. Mm-hmm. Well, Tart, uh, I've got one last question for you. What's next for you? What's, what's going on in your life? Um, well, I, like, <laughs> that's, that's the big question for me always, right? Well, in the fall, I'll be starting uh, law school at Berkeley uh, up north, and I really hope to, you know, get involved with some of the more CBOs or more activist groups in terms of, like, working with death row inmates, some of the clinics at the law school, and taking a more legal approach to my civic engagement. In the past, it's been more, you know, hosting events, fundraising for charities, or working with charities and, and you know, hosting community events. I think now I want to take and kind of like pivot my future goals into more of a legislative work, um, community development work, and more into law enforcement and working with the avenues of the law. So that's where I really see my life going over the next five years. Do you want to get into to what they call advocacy? That's kind of in the business. Yeah. That's what we call it, advocacy. Do yeah. you want to get into political advocacy? That was really great to talk to Tar again. Sometimes I will hear organizations say, We can't afford to have staff updating social media all the time when we are such a small organization. We forget sometimes our secret weapon, our mission. In most places of business, people work for a paycheck, climbing the ladder of power, or for a great title. In our business, people work for a mission because they care. We are always screaming about how we can't get younger people involved in our organizations. That's usually because we're trying to make them into us. We are telling them to do all the things that we would do the way that we would do them. What self-respecting millennial wants to hang out with a bunch of older people doing things in an antiquated way? If we partner with younger people, asking them to help us with their expertise, doing the things that we can't do for a mission that they care about, not only do we get them involved, but we also get all of their friends involved, who get their friends involved, and so on. A group becomes a movement on social media. You don't have to have a huge staff of people to manage a great social marketing effort on a regular basis. You just need to have a group of volunteers who know social media. Okay, let's face it, young people. And what can you offer such volunteers? A great deal. They need resume building work experience, extracurricular activities to list for scholarship applications, and a feeling that they have much to contribute. They need respect, just like the rest of us. Sometimes it can be disconcerting for us older, more experienced people that all our experience doesn't seem to count for much in this new digital world. We must go to the quote-unquote kids for help on things we don't understand, which seems to set the whole world order on its head. The power pyramid has somehow been reversed. But we need to remind ourselves and the youth who seem to know everything that we still have a lot to teach them and we have a lot to learn from them. We are no longer the mentors to the next generation. The internet has thrown out that model that worked for centuries. The world is theirs, but we can partner with them. As great as they are at using the internet to run the world, 
They are terrible at actual face-to-face communication, IRL, that's in real life networking, and real formal writing. We can teach them the old ways like Jedi Masters, and they can teach us the new. With mutual respect and admiration, we will both do better and so will our organizations. We can give them internships, titles, and eventually paying jobs as we grow. We can take them to lunch and make real friendships in ways that they couldn't have with their peers. We can mentor them as they mentor us. And if we approach them and technology in this way, we will all be successful. We must take the good with the bad and use each platform for what it is. Social media is like the popular kids in high school. They are looking for what is trending, great gossip, celebrity sightings, selfies, and pictures of good food. Millennials take a lot of pictures of their food. I'm sorry, but you do. If you can't couch your announcement as super cool and trendy, it will not get a great deal of notice. More popular people can spread your message better than less popular people. It's high school all over again. The trick is to be trendy and popular, to be the next ice bucket challenge, to go viral. There is no formula for that other than to have popular people talk about you. Companies are now hiring young bloggers to talk about products and make them viral. A blogger with a big following can have as much impact on internet chatter as a movie star does. But other than having a million friends who see your posts and repost them, there is no secret to going viral other than these simple facts. Pictures speak a thousand words, especially incredibly interesting or funny ones. A great headline is better than any other kind of text. Go for attention, edgy, funny, provocative works, but these can also get the wrong kind of attention, so be careful. The more darts you throw, the more likely you are to hit a bullseye. So post often, but don't post so often that you annoy people. These rules work, whether it's social media, crowdsourcing, online funding campaigns, or email blasts. Social media works best in crisis and exciting news. Once, when our funding was in threat of major cut by the city, we launched the story on Facebook, email blasts, and on our website with one short headline followed by the story of how program funding was being wiped out, leaving only maintenance funding of the grounds. This led to an avalanche of publicity, 1,600 new Facebook followers, 300 people showing up at city council meetings, 600 new members, $80,000 in new funding, and a vast reduction in the cut the city made, restoring $60,000 out of $80,000 proposed to be cut. All of this came from a single headline, City Proposes Cutting 100% of Our Program Funding. We had a great program, a community quinceanera for shelter girls. One year we were in danger of losing the $2,500 in funding for the food. We posted a single picture of the shelter girls dressed in their quinceanera dresses with tiaras on their heads as a GoFundMe campaign. It was an amazing picture. We raised $2,500 by the end of the fourth day and pledges for funding for the following year. One year a mentally disturbed arsonist tried to burn down our theater. They were caught, the theater sustained $40,000 in damages, including the loss of our historic piano. We posted a picture of the burned piano being put out by the firefighters with a link to the news story that ran in the paper and a link to our campaign to raise the $40,000. The picture went viral. It wound up in the paper. We raised the money in a week. We used the hammers of the damaged piano to make plaques for those who donated. It was a magical event that brought the community together and it was all online. Successful campaigns can't solve all your problems and may make new ones. If a campaign goes viral, an organization must deal with the deluge of attention it brings. There needs to be a plan in place if you are successful, and one in place if you are not. Once you have a presence on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, a YouTube channel, search engine optimization, or SEO, in searches, email blasts, and a strong website target, to which you can drive everyone, you are ready to integrate the paper communication. You have already ditched the paper newsletter in favor of an online version or a weekly email blast. But what about your people who are still <clears throat> computer-free? What about those people who like a tactile paper in front of them? What about the people who send everything to a spam folder but still read their actual mail? Even many millennials like to see paper invitations and brochures sent to them. Because so much is done online, paper mail can have a weight it didn't have before. 
This is true especially with well-printed and designed pieces on nice stationery. A beautiful invitation for an important event, a well-crafted brochure of upcoming programs with nice pictures and text, a sponsor package. Each of these things can be enhanced by a campaign that flawlessly integrates the paper version with the web version on the website and social media marketing. After taking over an art center with poorly attended events, we created an annual paper brochure of programs with the digital version on the website embedded in a virtual version of our center with a 360-degree tour of the grounds, a YouTube channel for videos and past performances, a virtual online gallery with art for sale, downloadable reports, our education program curricula and work samples, a photo gallery, and an online gift shop. We grew from 500 for a season's audience to over 13,000. Students grew from 1,000 to over 21,000. And patrons for all our programs from 10,000 annually to over 43,000 people. We did all this with one marketing staff person and a bevy of unpaid interns from local colleges. Many of our interns ended up as staff for us as we grew. Our marketing director was replaced by an intern. There were many reasons for our growth and success, but a large one was our ability to harness the web on a budget. I want to thank you for taking the time with us on 501c3bs. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First 100 Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choral group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.